um, we, uh, w- one thing I did want to ask, uh, just mention to you, uh, things that you can be praying about, a number of folks in our congregation either are in the hospital or were recently in the hospital, um, so uh, without uh, betraying any, any uh, privacy concerns, please just continue to lift up the folks that, uh, that are uh, uh, dealing with illness and uh, if you uh, know of anybody in particular who, who is, uh, please be sure to uh, pray for them. And also make sure you get permission to share that news with other people. Sometimes, um, how should I put this? Um, let's just say over the years, I've been told more things about the anatomy of more people in our congregation than I really needed to know. Um, so just bear that in mind when you're sharing medical news. So... Today, and frankly, for the next couple months, we're going to be talking about adiaphora. That is Greek to you, and it's Greek to everybody else. Adiaphora. Anybody know what adiaphora means? No, well, uh, Louise does, and I know she does. Uh, and I'm sure Louise has it right, because Louise is smart and she teaches chemistry. I, I couldn't even pass college chemistry, and she teaches it. So, uh, adiaphora are what, Louise? Right. Things that could go either way. So, here we have what's known as an alpha-privative. Grammarians call this an alpha-privative. Basically, it means not whatever follows. So an atheist is someone who does not believe in God. An agnostic is someone who does not know whether they believe in God or not. Uh, Adiaphora is without... Diaphora, getting your undies... In a bunch. And I'm not really exaggerating. Adiaphora are things that you really are not supposed to get bunched up about. They're things that you should not be bothered if somebody is doing something different from what you would prefer. They're things that are really not that big a deal, right? And this gets to be really, really important when it comes to the kinds of things that Paul is talking about in this section of Romans. We're in chapter 14, beginning of chapter 14 of Romans. Paul says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Uh, The word... Paul uses there is not adiaphora. He actually uses a word, uh, dilogismoi, which basically means things you might discuss about or argue about. But it's the same concept. One person's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak will eat only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another, another man considers every day alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Easy, right? (laughs) If only. This is an especially challenging passage, I should tell you, for Ron Lingenfelder. Ron, as you may know, is a devoted carnivore. Um, If you give Ron a salad, he will be offended. So just bear in mind that for some people this is a big deal, and you usually think about uh, people who are aggressively vegetarian, but we have the other as well. Uh, and So what, what Paul, what's Paul talking about here in this passage? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Right, what specifically is he talking about? What are the things that folk do? Right, this probably has to do with eating kosher or not. Right? You remember, Paul is writing to the community in Rome, the church, which has got folks in there who are of Jewish origin and folks who are of Gentile origin, and they have to live together and get along with each other. And there are probably folks there for whom it's really important to keep kosher, and they may not even eat meat because the only meat they could get was meat that would be available in the markets that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so they don't want to have any, anything to do with that. And, and Paul actually goes into this more in 1 Corinthians. They don't have anything to do with, with eating meat that was involved in any sort of a pagan worship ceremony. And then there are other folks who say, well, we know that this pagan stuff is nonsense. It's a burger. What's the big deal? Right? So, there's so, so, so that's one issue. What, what, are the, what are some other issues that Paul's bringing up here? Celebrating days. Like, what days might you celebrate? Sabbath. Yeah, what's that? Christmas. Seriously? Yes. Probably what's going on here has to do with whether you celebrate the Sabbath or not. Whether you uh, set aside one day uh, as, as separate from all the others following after Torah, or whether you understand that command of Torah to be no longer applicable, right? And celebrating certain holy days, certain feast days would be controversial. I mean, if, if you were a pilgrim back in the day, if you weren't working on Christmas, you were in big trouble because Christmas was considered to be a, an idolatrous pagan holiday. It was considered Romish to celebrate Christmas. And so you better be out in your fields diligently working and you better not be having a good time because it's Christmas. Some of us, that comes easier than others. But that was a big, that was a big deal then. At other times, it's been other holidays. And, and in, in Paul's case, yeah, are you, are you celebrating these certain holy days, recognizing them? These would have come, of course, from the Jewish calendar. But then there were other people who, coming out of their pagan backgrounds, might recognize other holidays that were being celebrated around them. And some folks might say, well, no, those are pagan holidays. You can't do that. Other people would say, it's a holiday. I got off work. I'm going to have a good time. What's the big deal? 
These are, Paul says, delegismoi, things you could have a discussion about, and they are adiaphora. They're things that are indifferent, things where, like David Bowie, you could go either way. Things you're not supposed to get bunched up about, right? And there are a lot of these. So let's take this out of the ethical realm for a moment. Let's just think about worship. Liturgy, if you will. Service of worship. What are some things that might be discussed? People might want to have arguments about. Style of music. That's right. Style of music. Time was, if you plugged a guitar in, then you were on the highway to hell. I'm not joking. Drums. Style of music. So electric. Drums. Right? Because be, the beat might make you want to dance. Right? You know, that's like why Baptists oppose premarital sex, because it might lead to dancing. Um, Yes. So Rick said, as recently as the early 80s, the big Christian radio station in town would not play music that had drums in it. What's that? <laughs> there are so many reasons. What, what, what else? What? Hymns. Yeah. How contemporary can the music be? And what kind of language do you want to have in there? Should you have these and thous in there? It's kind of fun, because sometimes when we do some of the old hymns, we'll uh, update the language, but not all of it. So um, you, you'll find us changing the pronouns, but then the lines don't rhyme. Uh, and then there's also, what other, what other language issues are at issue when it comes to the songs we sing? The lyrics themselves? What, what in particular? Gender, yes, right, gender. So I just read it out of of Paul's letter to the Romans, and he says one man does this, the other man does that. If you're female, does that make you feel like you're being left out of the conversation? Well, some people would say it is, right? So instead of rise up, O men of God, we would have to say rise up, O church of God, right? Or you make sure you have, like, the next verse, rise up, O women of God, and then you make up some lyrics that folks have done different ways. What other things are, are adiaphora? when it comes just to music. Organ. What's that? Organs and choirs. Chanting. What do you mean by chants, Jan, for those of us who haven't hung out with Anglicans much? Mm -hmm. Some people going, om. Yes. Right. Well, and you also have, so in the Anglican tradition, you have the plain song chants, where you have these melodies that kind of don't really go anywhere, but you sing the, the psalms along to these melodies. And, and you, you kind of get, you sort of dig it after you do it for a while, but at first it just seems very strange. Um, but yes, choirs and rubs. What, what would be a good reason for having a choir? 
Right, so one reason to have a choir would be that you have the people who sing better singing up front and glorifying God that way, right? What would be a reason not to have a choir if they don't sing any better? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, the location of where the, where the musicians are. Should they be in the center? Should they be off to the side? Should the choir be in the back? Should they be up in the balcony? We don't have a balcony, so that's where our choir is. What? How do they dress? Yes. Are they in robes? Is it expected that they have a certain level of decorum in their apparel? Right? Should the ladies have skirts going down to a certain place? Should the men have ties? Right? We, back at Grace, it used to be if somebody's wearing a tie, you know that he was either the usher, the preacher, or a visitor. Right? Uh, what were you going to say? Right. So you, I mean, there, there, this is a whole other category, which is liturgy. Is there, is there a set liturgy that do you do X, Y, Z? Does, do, do people know when they show up that we're going to do this thing, and then we're going to do that thing, and then we're going to do the other thing, and then we're going to do the thing where we do that thing, and then we're going to do the other thing, and then we get to go, go to brunch, right? Or when you show up, do you not exactly know what's going to come next, right? Tim? Repetition, yeah, there's another one. So in, in, the, in the words that are spoken, right, do you have uh, rote, right? We, just, it, we did Canticle 21, right? You are God, we praise you. That in Latin is the te deum, te deum latimus. The word tedium came from the te deum because people find it tedious to sit around and listen to some guy chant in Latin when they didn't know Latin, right? In fact, the language we use in church is a big point of contention, right? Up until not really very long ago at all, our Roman Catholic friends conducted the Mass in Latin. It was a big deal when you could conduct the Mass in the vernacular. It was a big deal in the Anglican tradition in the Church of England when Mass was conducted in English rather than in Latin. Some people tried doing a combination of both. But what, what language are you even going to use? Are you going to use very formal language? Are you going to use informal language? Right? Uh, Norm? Denominations. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, you know, uh, you know what, what's, are, are you following the style of your uh, particular denomination, a, a style that is, that is uh, set? Uh, so is there an authority that determines your liturgy? Do you have a book of services that your denomination puts out that you have to follow or that you're at least supposed to follow or that you theoretically could get in trouble for not following but probably won't matter unless somebody was really mad at you and then they might use it against you, right? Or do you kind of roll your own? Go ahead. Ah, oh, manual acts. I'll put this in literature, uh, just uh, physical, manual acts and just physical stuff in general, right? Paul says, right, I want men everywhere to lift holy hands in prayer, right? But there have been places in the tradition of our church where if you raised your hand during the worship service, you better have a question, right? Because this meant that somehow you were not engaging intellectually with the music and you were having some sort of an emotional experience and there was not a place for that. 
You should not be raising your hand. You should not be... No, okay. Some people here just shouldn't be clapping because they have no rhythm. But other people have said you shouldn't be clapping at all because, yeah, you might, you know, you might start to feel the beat and then you might end up dancing. But, but yes, it, in, in terms of, of the actions that people use, uh, whether you cross yourself, right? If you watch uh, um, the Steelers play today, you'll see Troy Polamalu crosses himself like constantly on the field, but he's Eastern Orthodox, so he, he goes this way instead of this way, which is the Western way, right? Um, so in church, some people do that, and other people don't, right? Some people do that, and it's really important to them, and other people don't, and it's really important to them that they not do it. They think it's kind of weird that you would do that. There, there is a huge uh, uh, debate among people who are interested in uh, the way that the Eucharist is consecrated, right? When we celebrate communion, uh, are, are elements supposed to be lifted up, or should they stay there on the table? Do you put a hand on them when you, when you say certain prayers? Do you make the sign of the cross over them when you say certain prayers? Should you bow or not, right? Are there places in the service, when, in certain prayers? Some people will bow every time the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. Other people will bow when the Trinity is mentioned. Other people will bow just because they dropped something. But uh, there are all kinds of different physical things that people can do when they're worshiping or not do. What, what else? Again, just, just thinking in terms of worship. Go ahead. An altar. Oh, my goodness. And here we go with architecture. Architecture. Is there an altar? Or do you call it a table? Right? Because if it's an altar, that means that there's some sort of a sacrifice being brought. But if you say, well, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross happened once for all. There's no more sacrificing that needs to be done, so we don't need to have an altar. We need to have... A table, though, because when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper at his table, so we need to have the kinds of things you'd have at a table, like a plate and a cup and candlesticks and a book holder. Uh, That's huge. Where where is the altar, right? Some churches can be right in the middle, right? Others can be way up on the wall. Others, it's moved back from the wall. Others, it's sort of moved kind of into the front, but not all the way in the middle, right? How are the seats arranged? Do you have a center aisle? If you want to market your chapel to weddings, you've got to have a center aisle. Uh, but, you know, are the seats arranged so that people are facing each other? Or are they arranged so that they're all facing forward? What, is, what does that say about how you understand what's going on in the service? Right? Do you have a pulpit? Do you have a separate pulpit and a lectern when people read? And who can be in the pulpit? So... Here we have a pulpit. This is the pulpit. Over there is the lectern. When there are readings from the word, they're read from over here. But when the sermon is preached, unless somebody comes out front, the sermon is preached here. Is that significant? Is that meaningful? Maybe. Maybe not. What other things? Yes, Alicia. Whether there are kids. Who is there? Right? What's the population of the service? For one, are kids there? And if kids are there... Are kids able to participate in communion? And do they have to be baptized or not if they are? That's the question. Other people would say, who is in the service? Are, are only those who are Christians able to stay through the whole service? It used to be, if you were not a baptized Christian yet, if you were a catechumen, or if you had been uh, charged uh, and found guilty of notorious sins, you had to leave the service in the middle before the Eucharist came. 
I'm serious. You had to like, you, you, got, you heard the sermon, which told you what you need to hear, and then you had to get up and go. Because the Lord's Supper was not for you yet. Right? Yes. If you were a notorious evil liver is one of the phrases, which, again, Ron uh, may get carnivorous about uh, evil liver. What, what, Pam, go ahead. What type of building? Right. Is the space itself consecrated? What else could happen inside this space? Right? Oh, that's population. Consecrated. Would it be wrong to have a neighborhood association meeting inside this building? Would it be wrong to have a neighborhood association meeting inside the sanctuary? Would it be wrong to have a synagogue meet inside the building? How about inside the sanctuary? Would it be okay to meet in a movie theater where just an hour after the service you're going to have all kinds of blood and guts and and nasty stuff up on the screen? Do you have to have space that is consecrated strictly for the purpose of worship? Right? What what else? Yeah, Mark. Ah, yeah, no kidding. Right. What media are allowed? Could you, for example, show a clip from an R-rated movie? Could you show a clip in which somebody gets eviscerated and you have 24 frames of intestines spilling out? Or should you? Should you use PowerPoint? Is it bad if you put a screen up? Seriously, churches lose people when they put up screens. Friends of mine, that just happened. They've put up a screen in the sanctuary. People left because they felt the sanctuary was being desecrated by the presence of a screen. I'm not joking. This is, this is for real. Tim? Oh, yeah. Right. So, you know, what, like, uh, can, do, this would kind of go with the language in some ways. If, if you find you're having an ecstatic experience of prayer and you find that you're just speaking this language that you don't understand, but somehow you know that you're praying when you do, are you allowed to do that in the service, right? And, and Paul actually talks about that, 1 Corinthians 14. But then, yeah, the altar call, like, it, it, that would, that would kind of go with, with the, uh, the, the set liturgy. I mean, in some churches, the service is not over until somebody has the come to Jesus talk with the whole congregation. If you haven't been asked to come to Jesus, you're not done with church yet. Seriously, right? Okay, Justin. Oh, yeah. Ah. Crucifix. What kind of things... What furnishings do you have? Right? Do you have a crucifix with dead Jesus on it? Do you have a cross with live Jesus on it? I was at church this morning where they have a cross behind the pulpit, and Jesus is on it, but he's alive. Right? Do you have, as we have here, a cross which is empty, which uh, in the Protestant tradition means we're, we're uh, emphasizing the finished work of Christ, the fact that the cross is empty, Jesus has died for our sins. Uh, others say that it's left empty so that the board can remind the pastor there's still room to put somebody up there. <laughs> or do you have a cross at all? Should you even have them? If you project a cross, is that okay? Should your cross have little flowers on it? Should it be carved? Should it be ornate? Should it be a Celtic cross? Should it be a Jerusalem cross? Should it be St. George's cross, which I think is the Jerusalem's cross, right? Marlene? Lighting. Lighting. Yeah, 
how important is it that people in the, in the congregation be able to see what's going on? Should you be able to see to read? Well, if you can't read, or if you're not expected to read, that's not really all that important, is it? Right. Are lights on and off? Does it matter what kind of windows you have? Do you have windows like these beautiful stained glass windows that let in this lovely golden light, where you have this, this beautiful glow in here? Or should you have windows that have all kinds of biblical scenes portrayed in stained glass? Because for people who can't read, that's one way they can learn the stories. Or so people who are bored have something to look at other than, like, colored glass. Or should you not waste your money on fancy windows and give it to the poor instead? Darcy. Yeah. How often is communion? Okay. It used to be, in some traditions, that you needed to make sure communion happened four times a year. As long as you came to three of those, then you were good. You were kind of fully communicating. There are others where communion, other churches where communion happens every day, multiple times a day. And yes, and what do you use? Do you use wine? Do you use grape juice? Do you use both? Is it important if you do that they be visually separate so that you don't accidentally do one or the other? Or is it important that they look as similar as possible so that it feels like they're both real? Right? Is the bread leavened or unleavened? What do you do with the elements when you're done with them? Right? So traditions that hold that the bread and the wine are consecrated, right? that, that they are set apart for sacred use, will say that at the end of the service, you need to consume all of the bread and the wine. Or some say you have to scatter the bread on the ground and you have to pour the wine directly into the ground, not into a drain, but in, in some, and it's a piscina, I think. There's a, there's a tube in some churches in the sacristy, which is a little room off the back of the church, where you pour the wine in and it goes directly into the ground. Um, others say, well, it's only consecrated while the community is there to celebrate it, and so once the service is over, it's just bread and wine again, and you go home and make a sandwich with it. Uh, others say, you're not consecrating a damn thing. It's still bread and wine the whole time. Get over yourself and don't worry about it, uh, especially if that's your excuse to want to have to want to drink the rest of the wine. I do hope that we practice it. Uh, James likes the bread, so he takes it home, and uh, whoever cleaned up after communion gets to take the wine home. Um, Marlene. Right, you have little cups. Right, do you get to break a piece off by yourself or do the pieces have to be broken for you? Do you take a piece out of the thing, out of the basket or the, the, the plate, or is a piece handed to you, placed in your hand? Is anything said to you when that happens? Do you take the cup that is a common cup or does everybody get an individual sanitary cup? Do you do communion by intinction where you dip the bread in the cup, which some say is more sanitary and others say less so because your fingers are dirty and then that gets in the wine. Um, right. Uh, go ahead, Ruth. Oh, yeah. Is there a baptismal font? And where is it? Is it by the entrance to the church so that when you walk in, you can dip your finger in the baptismal water and cross yourself? Is it in the front so that when there's a baptism, everybody can see what's going on? Is it off to the side because it doesn't get used much? Are there a bunch of things stacked on top of it because it really doesn't get used much? Is there a baptismal font at all? Or do you have baptisms outside of the church building? Like in somebody's backyard in Reisterstown. Yes? Uh, 
yeah, what, what, kind of, what kind of artwork do you have? Do you have statues? Do you have icons? Right? Do you have people carved? Like there are some pulpits where they're carved with, you know, great doctors of the church all around it. Right? Others not. Dad and then Alicia. Yeah, which translation of scripture are you going to use? Right? Exactly. Are you expected to bring your own? Or are you expected to use the one here? Or, or, you know, the church where I grew up in, people looked at you funny if you took it out of the, of the pews at all to look at it. Uh, what else? Yeah. Who can, who can administer communion? Do you have to have somebody who is a priest? Do you even call the minister a priest, or is he just a minister? Is it bad if you call him a priest? Because some people would say it's very bad to call a minister a priest because priests offer sacrifices. The sacrifice has already happened. It's all done. There's no more sacrificing to be done, so you don't need a priest, and you better not call somebody a priest. Others say, no, it's important because there's a a priestly ministry that uh, the person who is leading the congregation and, and administering the sacrament is called to. Folk disagree on this. Yes, Kelly. Right, is there some sort of a, a confirmation or a, a coming-of-age ceremony? Is there, uh, is there a sacrament of reconciliation or uh, confession, right? That, it, do you practice that? Is that important? Does it have to, do you have to confess to somebody who is a priest or a minister, or can you pr- confess to anybody else, Jan? What day of the week do you meet? Do, do, are, do, do you have your service on Saturday because that's the Sabbath? That's the Jewish Sabbath? Or do you have it on Sunday because that's the Lord's Day? Does it matter? Ron? Dip pour, yeah, for, for baptism. Is it okay if you sprinkle some water over somebody? Uh, do you need to uh, just sort of dip them in, 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 the, uh, in the pool or the baptistry? Do you have to dunk them and hold them under for a certain number of seconds? Um, I mean, that gets really tricky because some, I mean, some churches have... They, they, I mean, at, at my school, the baptismal font is called, they call it the baby baster because it's big enough to dunk a baby in, right? They think if you're going to baptize a baby, you know, you go the whole nine and you dunk that sucker, put him underwater, then he's really baptized. I'm, but most of the, a baby, yes. If the, if the font is big enough, they, they may be. Fonts aren't usually that big, but uh, they might have like a white baptismal gown or something. No, they have like a white baptismal. The, the idea is that the frilly like dress that you put the baby in is something you put on after they've been baptized. While they're being baptized, they wear a very simple white garment. Well, that's because it's not usually done. Yes. Yeah, Alicia. What are people allowed to wear? Right. Vestments. So when, when we had uh, David Neff and uh, A.J. Levine here about a year and a half ago, David, who is Episcopalian, who is um, a, a music director in, in his church, uh, looked at my Ravens jersey and said, are those your vestments? And I said, on game day they are. But some people would say, no, that's entirely impermissible. They would say, no, you have to wear certain vestments based on your function in the, in the service. So if you are the one who is reading the scripture, you need to be wearing uh, an alb, for example, a certain type of vestment. Other would say, others would say, if, if you are carrying the cross, if you're a crucifer, do you even have a cross that gets carried in? Is there a procession? Do you have candles? 
do, do those people have to wear different things? If, if you're reading a text, do you have to wear something? If, you are, uh, if you're the one presiding, do you have to have special vestments that indicate that there's something really special going on about what you're doing? How are those cut? How fabulously are they designed? What color should they be? We're, we're, we're out of time. Sir, and we have only talked about some of the issues that go on with just one area where you may have things to discuss. This is just about liturgy. We haven't even talked about ethical matters like not just do you have wine for Eucharist, but should you have wine at all? We talked about whether the bread is leavened or unleavened, but should you be eating a burger with that bread at all? Should you be eating salad with that bread at all? (laughs) And we also haven't gotten into even more interesting ethical questions that didn't really come up. We haven't gotten into questions of doctrine, like, is Jesus going to come back before or after or during the tribulation? Or is that not really going to happen? Is there going to be a millennium? Does he come back before it or after it? Or is it not really a millennium? Is there not really going to be the thousand-year reign? There are a whole lot of these questions that can and should rightly be understood as adiaphora, as things where you could go either way. The specific challenge that we have as believers as Jesus' people, the thing we're going to be working through over the next couple months, and the thing that I think is particularly timely for us as New Hope, as we are contemplating this partnership that we've been invited into with our, our friends in the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, is how do we deal with adiaphora within our own body, within our own congregation, and how do we deal with it with them with regard to the church as a whole. What are the kinds of attitudes that we need to be cultivating? What are the kind of practices we need to be engaging in ourselves, within our congregation? And how do we think about this stuff with respect to other congregations, other denominations? These aren't easy questions. I mean, we, again, we threw up a bunch of stuff about just one portion of the things we might think about and talk about. 